0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. So Julie and I just passed 15 years of marriage, and I was reflecting uh, at the time we were about to be married. I remember coming to her one day and I said, Julie, I've been thinking kind of big picture stuff about our, our marriage. I propose that we have really low expectations going into this thing, okay? Me for you and you for me and both of us about this marriage. And my thinking was, if we had low expectations, then whatever happened, surely we would meet and perhaps even exceed those expectations and count our marriage a success. I won't tell you what she said. <laughs> now in the most charitable interpretation, what I was advocating for was, let's be gracious to one another. And I stand by that. Let's be gracious to one another. And there is other advice and counsel that I stand by that we still give uh, to married couples or friendships or anybody in a relationship, which is none of the mind-reading guessing games, okay? If you really loved me, you would know what I need right now. No, none of that. If you have a want, speak to it. If you have something you need, let the other person know. Because living with ambiguous expectations is not good for a relationship. Or maybe some of you have been in a job where your job description was gray and fuzzy and your supervisor or your boss had no clarity for you. And that's an unsettling feeling because you don't know, am I succeeding or not? I don't know because I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing and the one who's supposed to let me know, I don't know what he or she expects. That's no fun. Now maybe you've wondered, in my relationship to God, what does he expect of me? Does he let me know, or, or is it up to me to guess? Well, thanks be to God, he doesn't leave it up to us to guess. He lets us know, what does he expect of us? And today, we're going to talk about one of the most important things that he expects from us. Not the only thing that he expects, but one of the most important things that he desires to see in us. And it is this, to have a soft heart. The Lord would say, more than sinless perfection, m- way more than that, I want a soft, responsive heart that's open to me. When you encounter me in my word or when you encounter me in worship like Isaiah and that vision of the holy living God, I know that you're going to respond well, you're you're going to be permeable, you're going to take in and receive what I have to give you. So let's turn now to our passage, Isaiah chapter 6, it's on page 571 in your pew Bibles. Now, the centerpiece of this passage is verses 9 and 10. So let's start there. Let's start at verses 9 and 10. God is speaking, and he says to Isaiah, this is Isaiah's commissioning. Go, and here is the message that you are to give to the people. There will be other messages and other visions later, but this message is kind of the cornerstone of Isaiah's ministry. Everything else will be related to these two verses. Okay, so what is it? What's it going to be? What's my message? Here he says, tell these people, keep on hearing Don't understand. Keep on seeing. Don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, Isaiah. Make their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and and repent and turn, and and I would heal them. That's the message Isaiah is given. Notice this threefold formula of eyes, eyes, ears and the heart so what we're seeing what we're hearing and what we're taking in in our soul now at first glance and listening to this chapter you might not think this is the centerpiece wait what about that whole vision of the holy God I mean that's so cool why is that not what we're focusing on well it is really cool let's talk about that for just a minute So at the beginning, Isaiah has this vision. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, and the robe of the Lord, his his glory, his honor, the, the robe of a king was his honor and a sign of his authority, it filled the temple. And above the Lord were two seraphim. These are angels whose special and only job is to be right near to the presence of God's glory, so near that they need extra wings to shield their face and their feet from the glory. And these seraphim are calling out to, a, to each other with the worship song of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of his glory. We know this is the worship song of heaven because in John's vision in Revelation, it, this is the same song. When he sees the throne and the angels and the creatures around the throne, they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the one who was and is and is to come. And it's a vision filled with glory that fills all the heavens and the new earth. So this is the worship song of heaven, and Isaiah is there, and what happens? Well, it says that the temple begins to shake, the foundations are trembling, there's smoke rising up, and then it says he himself, the prophet, is shaking. The temple's shaking, and he's shaking in the presence of a living God, the living God, and he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I see my sin. In the light of this holiness, my sin is revealed so clearly, and I'm undone. I'm toast in the light of this fire and holiness. We were visiting my friend from, from uh, my hometown last summer, and, and my buddy had a, has a dog, a golden lab uh, named Annie, and like all, Labradors, uh, this creature is more close to God than most creatures on earth because this creature is filled with unconditional love. But this this golden lab, Annie, is also a powerful and strong creature. And, And to my Toby, who was three years old at the time and about the same height, was terrifying. He was afraid of that dog, but gradually over the days of our visit, he warmed up enough that he would play fetch with Annie. But even so, when he would throw the ball and she would get the ball and come bounding back to him, he would step back and cringe and just this look of terror on his face. Then he'd grab the ball and he'd do it again. And Julie looked at him and said, Toby, she's a big dog, isn't she? Are you afraid that she's going to knock you over when she comes running up to you? And Toby, very matter of factly said, no, I'm afraid she's going to eat me. (laughs) So Isaiah is in the presence of a holy, living God, and he says, I am afraid that I am undone. Yes, God is filled with unconditional love, but that takes away nothing from his power and his majesty and the fact that at the snap of his fingers, Isaiah would be undone if it weren't for the grace and the favor that the Lord shows to him. So yes, this vision is incredible, but it's not the centerpiece of this passage. The centerpiece is, is that cheerful little prophecy that Isaiah gets to give to his people, which will be the hallmark of his ministry. You're seeing, but you don't see. You're hearing, but you don't understand. Your heart is closed. That's what he gets to tell the people. So let's take a look more closely at verses 9 and 10 again. When we look at this, it is a little confusing. Like we see God saying something like, tell them that they're deaf and blind and that they're hard-hearted, Tell them this, lest they see and hear and understand and and return and repent and receive healing. And immediately we we say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't God want turning and repentance and healing? Usually we, we use the word lest to refer to something we don't want to have happen. That is a little confusing. And it's where it's important for us to read and to know the whole of the Bible. We talk about the canon interpreting the canon. Other scriptures interpret scriptures. So when we read the whole Bible, it is clear. Yes, God wants people to repent. And yes, when they repent, he turns and he heals them. So then, what's the point? The point is that Isaiah is to say, you've already had every opportunity to see what there is to see, to hear what there is to hear, And if you would have known and repented, you would have done it by now. And it's actually too late. So it's not Isaiah saying, I desire that you be blind and deaf and hard-hearted. It's Isaiah saying, you are. You are blind and deaf and hard-hearted. God is looking for soft hearts among the people of Israel. He's not finding them. So again, the message is not, I want you to be these things, but it is simply, no, my prophetic message is, you are. I'm showing you what is true. I'm speaking to you what God sees. And we might wonder okay, what does it mean that they see, but they don't see, or they hear, but they don't hear? What's the first seeing and the first hearing that apparently is not leading to the second seeing and the second hearing? Well, Isaiah like all of the other prophets knew well the Word of God that had already been given to Israel. We're talking about the Torah, the law which Moses had written. Because in the law was everything that Israel needed to be faithful and to obey. Also in the law, in Deuteronomy, at the close of Deuteronomy, chapters 28 and 29, Moses is writing and he's saying, and if you are faithful, Here is what you can expect. And he lays it out really clearly. If you are unfaithful, here are the curses that you can expect. Here is what will happen to you. And he lays it out clearly and in such detail that all the prophets are doing is simply letting the people know, hey, what God said, he meant it. Those things that are already written down for you, they are happening now. And Moses said, This will happen if you're faithless. So the prophets were just trying to connect the dots for the people of what was already there and in their possession. If you stayed faithful, there would be blessings. Life would look like this. If you forsake the Lord, these are the specific things that will happen. And the prophets were saying, these things are happening. Can you connect the dots? But the people were not connecting the dots. They refused to believe. Oh, this is on us. This is because we've forsaken the Lord. And that's why the prophets were sent again and again to tell them. You're not listening. You have everything you need in front of you. But you're not paying attention to the word I've already given. Now, Jesus also seems to think that Isaiah chapter 6 is really important. And not the cool vision and the flying seraphim and the hot burning coal, but verses 9 and 10. You're seeing, but you don't see. You're hearing, but you don't get it. Why, how do we know? Because Jesus quoted this. Three Gospels have Jesus quoting these words, and the fourth, he alludes to this chapter. So when something shows up in all four Gospels, you know that it is significant. And Jesus quoted this in the context of telling parables, and specifically the parable about the four different soils. The soil of the hard path, where the seed couldn't take root. The soil of the rocky soil, the soil of the thorns and then finally the good and fertile soil. And in the context of the parable of the soils, Jesus quotes Isaiah 6. You're seeing, but you actually don't see. You're hearing, but you don't get it. And Jesus, when he explained this parable, which was rare, he didn't always do that, but in this one he did, he said the seed is the Word of God. You have everything that you need in the Word of God. The fertile soil, are those who receive the word of God openly, responsively, who take it in, and he says, understand. Now, not just understand here, but understand here. Get its importance. Realize that this is showing me how to live. We want expectations, don't we? We want to know, what do you expect of me? And God is saying, I've laid it out for you in your word. Will you read it? Will you pay attention to it? will you seek to live obediently to it you have everything you need in the Word of God that's what Jesus is saying that's what Isaiah was saying and Jesus is saying that that fourth soil the fertile soil it's soft hearts that I'm looking for that like fertile soil will receive the Word of God planted and welcome that seed and hold it fast with a good and honest heart so this is how God Well, first of all, he wants you to be in his word on your own throughout the week. But he wants you to come to that time in the word with this openness and expectancy. God is going to tell me what I need. Even if it's just a little bit, just the manna for today. Even if I have one verse that I'm reading and I'm going to think about it later or whether I've got more time to meditate further, whatever it is, the Lord's going to speak to me. So to come with that openness, to come to church every week with that same open expectancy, God's going to speak to me. I'm going to hear him. He's going to help me know what faithfulness looks like. And similarly, when you come to youth group or your res group or any other fellowship and gathering, come with openness and expectancy. And here's something a little more cheerful. Not everyone rejected Jesus. The disciples, he said, you see. Blessed are those who see what you see and hear what you hear. Because you don't just see with the first seeing, you see with the second seeing. You don't just hear with the first hearing, you hear with the deeper hearing. You understand. Blessed are you, he said to the disciples. Blessed are you, he says, to every one of you who with open responsiveness comes to the word of God regularly. Blessed are you. And not everyone in Isaiah's day had a hard heart. Look at Isaiah himself the prophet himself, in this very passage, stands in stark contrast to the rest of Israel that he's denouncing, right? Israel, they're seeing, they're hearing, but they don't get it. But what happens? Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He hears the voice of the seraphim and then later God's own voice and he responds with obedience. So Isaiah, even in the midst of a discouraging prophecy about those who don't get it, Isaiah shows us some do. There are soft hearts in Israel yet. And as you look around the prophetic literature, you get to understand there is this concept of the remnant, that Isaiah wasn't the only one either. There was still few and small in number, but there were a faithful few who still were seeking after God because God had promised, I will always keep for myself a remnant. He said, I will do this. Because I've made a covenant with Abraham and these people, I will never utterly discard this people from the face of the earth. There will always be some who are faithful and following me, and that's my work. I'm doing it. He promised it. So this idea of the remnant whom Isaiah is part of and represents, we see this in verse 13. But before we get to verse 13, so Isaiah is given his cheerful little message, and Isaiah says, Understood. That's what I'm supposed to say. Follow-up question, how long? How long do I have to say that? And God's response is, until the cities are laid waste, the land is empty, the people are kicked into exile, and the tree that you knew as the glory of Israel is cut down, pruned to a stump. That's what verses 11, 12, and 13 tell us. Okay, more cheerfulness. But then look at the last line. Look at the last line of chapter 6. The holy seed is its stump. When we look at a stump, we think that's a dead tree. There's nothing more happening. But God is saying in this stump there is life still. There's a seed of life. And that seed will come bursting back into life once the judgment has passed. You see, what looks like an end to you and to me is the beginning with God. Anything to you that looks like the end of something in God's hands, it's the beginning of something new. All throughout Isaiah, we have, again, these themes and these motifs of of judgment, yes. But on the other side of judgment, God is doing a work of creating a new city called Zion, a new Israel that is restored and holy, and even a new earth and a new world where all the nations of the earth are following the Messiah, the King of Israel, in righteousness. That's what God is doing on the other side of the judgment. Now, this is only the fourth week of our series in Isaiah. But by now, even though it's only been four weeks, you should be, unless you're blind and deaf and your heart is hard, you should be getting something, okay? You should be hearing and understanding that judgment is a necessary component to the good news. Judgment is a necessary element because without judgment, there's no justice. Without justice, there's no good news. Without judgment, there's no hope of something better. Without judgment, then the world, as you see it in its brokenness, is as good as it gets. That's as good as it gets without judgment. And so Isaiah and what we've been hearing so far and we will continue to hear through the rest of this series is that judgment matters because it clears wickedness away to prepare the way for righteousness to come. Without judgment clearing wickedness, there's no possibility for righteousness. And this happens on a global level. In Isaiah, we'll see that God judges the nations, and the wicked nations he removes from the earth to purify the earth. We see it on the national level, within Israel. God is removing wicked people. The wicked people he's cutting down like the tree so that the remnant remains, he's purifying his nation. We see this as individuals. The Lord removes wickedness from our hearts and purifies us, transforms us so that we become more and more like him. And in fact, the key to understanding a question you're all asking right now, which is, who's the remnant? And am I in the remnant? The key to knowing the answer to that question is actually with this individual removal of wickedness. When I am one who lets God purify me, When I am one who with a soft heart allows God's holiness to remove the wickedness from me and I do not resist that movement but I welcome it, that is what makes me and that is what makes you part of the remnant. So at this point, talking about the remnant, the righteous, faithful few, it's so important to be clear. It's easy to be confused. And confusion at this point is disastrous. So let me be clear right now. And, and listen attentively, like I know you always do. The remnant, and who is the remnant? And how do I get to be one of the remnant? The remnant are not the sinless or the perfect. Otherwise, Isaiah would be cut out. No, the remnant are not the sinless and the perfect. That famous verse in Romans 3, all have sinned. Every single one has sinned. We fall short of the glory of God, the glory that Isaiah said. We fall short of that, every one. And Paul in Romans is just parroting Isaiah, who in 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each, at some point in our life, turned to our own way. We've made gods of ourselves, and the Lord has laid upon the Messiah the punishment and the iniquity of our rebellion. But it's super clear. This is all, this is everyone. So the remnant are not those who are sinless because that would be nobody but the Lord Jesus himself. The remnant are those who know they're sinners. The remnant are those who know that they do not keep God's law, but they love God's law and they want to keep his law. They just know they don't always. The remnant are those whose hearts have been softened by the fact of their sin, and in the light of God's holy hatred of sin, they cry out with Isaiah, Woe is me! Have mercy on me! Have mercy on me!" So we've been talking about what God expects of you, this soft, repentant heart. What if we turn the table? and ask the question of the Lord. What can you expect of God? And I don't mean in in the sense of being in authority over, here's what I expect of you, God. But more in the sense of, if you come to him with a softened heart, what can you expect his response will be? Again, do we have a way of knowing? Yes, because he tells us. And in his promises and in the history, his track record of how he responds, we can be assured, and especially from our passage today, That when you come to God with a soft heart, two things you can expect in response. First, He will be gracious to you. Second, He will never give up on you. Oh, isn't that good news? When you come to the Lord with that soft heart, He says, I will be gracious to you and I will never give up on you. So we see with Isaiah's own example, He cries out, Woe is me, I'm a sinner. Here's my sin. I confess it. And what happens? The seraph takes a coal from the altar and touches it to Isaiah's lips and says, See now, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And atonement is a word that can either mean covering over or cleansing away. And both make sense to us. When you've done something that you know is wrong and it's weighing on you and it's guilt and it's shame and it's a burden, you either want that washed and cleansed and taken away or, or you want the shame of it covered like you want nakedness to be covered. And God is saying, when you confess and you repent, that is exactly what I do. I cover your nakedness, I remove your shame and your guilt. And by the way, it's the only way it works. There's a lot of people who, apart from the Gospel of Jesus, they're they're desperately trying to figure out, how do I get rid of this guilt and the shame that I'm feeling? Lots of money is being spent on therapists and counselors to say, how do I get rid of shame and guilt? And let me be clear at this point, there's a kind of guilt that you're not responsible for because it's things you didn't do, but I'm talking about the guilt that you feel for the things you have done, and you know, no matter how much you try to deny it, no matter how much others might try to tell you it's not your fault, you know, I did this. I am responsible for this. Let me just tell you, it won't help you to try to find any other way around but to simply own it and say, I did this, and it was wrong. And to come to the Lord and say, will you take away this guilt and the heavy burden that I'm feeling? And when you come with that softened heart, the readiness to acknowledge, I am a sinner, he promises he will, you can expect he will be gracious to you, and he will forgive the guilt of your sin. And so people who follow the Lord regularly and have softened hearts, they know the secret. And if you were to listen in on their prayers, or if you were to read through their prayer journals, you would see confessions of sin all over the place. You would see, here goes a person who's quickly and able to recognize when they've done wrong and to speak it square in the face. There's no blame shifting. There's no squishiness. They just own it with security because they've learned in their relationship with God it will be met with grace and forgiveness. These same people who have softened hearts, you know them because they're also quickly able and more easily than the rest of us to admit when they've been wrong to other people, to friends, spouses, co-workers, a boss, your children, your parents. So how are you doing in this regard? If you were to take a diagnostic of the softness of your heart, are your prayers filled with confession? Is it easy for you to name and to see, here's the wrong that I've done? I name it squarely, and I give it to you. How easy is it for you to apologize to someone else or admit when you've been wrong? Is that something you've done recently? Well, with God, maybe there's something in your life that you know He knows about, but you haven't really talked to Him about it. You know what I mean. And there's something that you're carrying, it's a burden. Well, I would say, don't leave today. Don't leave the sanctuary. Until you've told Jesus about that thing that is weighing on you and ask his forgiveness. And maybe there is a person in your life that you know and the Spirit is convicting you even right now. You need to go to that person and tell them you were wrong. Well, make a plan to do that this week. Don't let another week go by where you haven't done that. Because again, those who have softened hearts and have this practice and pattern of coming to the Lord with a soft heart, we, we know and expect the gracious response from Him. The Lord who says, I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So when we come to God with a, f- a soft heart, the first thing we can expect is that He will be gracious. The second thing, when you come to God with a softened heart, the second thing that you can expect of Him you can take it to the bank because he's promised it. Is that he will never give up on you, just like he never gave up on Israel. He will never give up on you. And where, like that stump, there is anything in your life that feels like an ending, what looks to you like an end for God, that is a beginning. Where we see an end, God sees the beginning. He is not through with you. He will never give up on you when you come with a soft heart. And so is there anything in your life that feels like it is coming to an end? Is there something that you're losing right now? Something you're having to say goodbye to? Something that maybe is a shoot out of the ground that died. It never was fulfilled. Some loss or grief in this season. I promise you that with God and entrusted to God, that thing and all the unfulfilled desires connected to that thing where you see an ending, God is about to do something new in your life, I promise. So stay soft. Resist bitterness. Let it be brought to an end. Let go of control. And see what the Lord does with that very thing in His hands. Because the end of chapter six, Isaiah, in a small little phrase, He talks about a holy seed. And that word seed, like a seed itself, is going to grow through the next several chapters of Isaiah. Because right next door in chapter 7, Isaiah begins to prophesy not just about the remnant, that the stump and the holy seed is the remnant of Israel, but he says, no, it's actually talking about someone, a Messiah. That holy seed that is the life in the stump In chapter 7, Isaiah says, the virgin shall conceive. There's going to be a seed in the womb of the virgin. That seed will be called Emmanuel. God is coming. In chapter 9, in the midst of gloom and cloud and distress, a light breaks upon the gloom, and Isaiah says, now that seed has become a child. To us, a child is born, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. And of his kingdom there will be no end. He will be called Almighty Father, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. He's speaking of the Messiah. He's speaking of a coming kingdom. And finally, in chapter 11, Isaiah goes back to the stump. And he says, I see a stump again. It's the stump of Jesse, which refers to the line of David where the kings come from. He says, from that stump that looks dead, I see a root shooting up I see a new branch it's the Messiah a king is coming and on him will be the sevenfold Spirit of the Lord the Spirit of the Lord of knowledge and counsel of might and strength of wisdom and the fear of the Lord and under his reign and in his kingdom the wolf will lie down with the lamb children will play in snakes nests and they will not be harmed people will will live forever And he's saying, at this time and under the reign of this king, the glory of the Lord that Isaiah saw in his vision, he says, that's going to fill the earth as waters cover the seas. So the little seed at the end of chapter 6, by the end of chapter 11, has now become a majestic, glorious, and breathtaking kingdom that is coming, more wonderful than you can hope for. And God's invitation to you this morning is, do you want to be part of that kingdom? Then come today. Come to the table with a softened heart, receive the Eucharist like Isaiah received that coal of fire to cleanse him. And may we more and more be a people humble and able to receive the word of God. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation.